escaped sapiens. Why can't we grow back limbs like a gecko? And why do our bodies scar after injury rather than growing back perfectly as they once were? Severe burn injuries can result in horrific scarring, leading to intense pain and debilitation. And up until fairly recently in history, were often a death sentence with patients being overrun by waves of infection. With modern medicine though, today, some patients can survive severe cases with burns covering over 80% of their bodies. In this episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Fiona Wood, who works at the sharpest edge of this technological advance. Fiona is one of the inventors of spray on human skin, which is able to limit pain, scarring and infection in burns victims, sometimes dramatically improving their survivability. The holy grail of Fiona's work is perfect scarless healing. So how does the gecko do it? <laughs> so I'll, I'll ask you, I, I'm, I'm wondering when, when you first started in surgery, why was it that you decided to go into plastic surgery? Is it, is it a clinical need that you saw or, or was it more that you were interested in, in the, the science and the techniques that were, were in play at the time? Well, I think plastic and reconstructive surgery is really innovative. I remember when I was a medical student watching what they were doing, new techniques of microsurgery, tissue expansion, and trying to understand uh, those, the, those boundaries of possibilities. And so for me, it still is innovative. And so it's all about how can we rebuild people? How can we uh, fix the problem, whether it be cancer or trauma, such that there is close to what the person was before before the it, all this happened to them and then now what about being a little bit better and of course plastic surgery you know if you take 10 years off you're you're in business as well what what's microsurgery is that dealing with nerves or what in particular was that that was uh, attractive to you microsurgery is uh, surgery done using the microscope so Basically, the ability to reconnect nerves that are very in very accurately, uh, that are obviously very small, and more particularly, blood vessels. Blood vessels are such that you can move tissue around the body. For example, the, it had just started when I was in medical school and just in the early days. You could, if a young man who'd had a, a broken leg uh, with open fracture uh, was really at a risk of losing that leg. Whereas you could take the muscles like the litmusoli muscle on the blood vessels and wrap it around uh, the fracture and reintroduce more blood supply into there and save the leg by reattaching the blood vessels, the artery and, and the vein and doing so under the microscope. So that was just really coming in as I first started. I mean, it's part of absolutely routine nowadays and it's mm -hmm. done every, every, sort of daily around the hospital uh, for, with our plastic and reconstructive surgeons. So, so it's those kind of technologies that are being introduced and, and disseminated uh, by the plastic surgeons that really got me hooked. Actually problem solving. Well, this is the problem how we, let's see the tools we've got right now but how can we build a better toolbox how can we actually explore the boundaries and bring in other uh, techno you know, science and engineering to actually push further forward and that's mm -hmm. the space as i say i've lived in for 30 nearly 40 years so even back then you were wanting to make advances in the field uh, when you first started you you were more pushing towards the research direction even back then right from the words go I mean, there was a bit of a need uh, from a point of view uh, as a med student. I knew that I, if I wanted the jobs, I had to have a CV that really stood uh, stood up and got noticed. And the the obvious thing to me was to volunteer in, uh, in research. And I was a research dog's body for lots of different projects at that time. And really, it got me, I was a why person. I still am a why person. I was a why kind of kid, you know. And so it was suited my personality and it gave me that edge when I went in to look for various jobs. It was clear that I was, a, was able to think beyond and to do things the, and, and spend the time to do stuff, to work hard, to, to try and investigate and imp improve what we were doing. Yeah. I guess also with plastic surgery, particularly when you're dealing with people with congenital defects and, and uh, things like this, there must be, I imagine when you were first getting started that, that it, it must be fulfilling to, to actually be able to see the impact you're having on patients and the improvements you can have in people's lives. Was that sort of a driving factor as well on, on more of the clinical side? 
yeah, from a from a surgical perspective, surgery it fascinates me and still does that we've developed systems in us in society where we've got a group of people who we will give consent to, and my job is to look after you where you're ultimately vulnerable. You're under anaesthetic. You have no control of what's going on. And I've taken that responsibility to do my best for you in that context. And in my context, of course, it's burn surgery and the, the plastic surgery techniques around uh, burns reconstruction. But surgery as a whole, you know, is fascinating that we, are, we can actually have these systems that with the level of rigor around it so people thousands upon thousands of people every day will have surgery you know and mm -hmm. and will come out better the reason for the you know they'll go through that process they well i need this because of you know i've got pain or because i've got a tumor or or whatever it may be or because i you know i've cut myself you know uh, trying to get the stone out of the avocado or whatever it is and I've cut my nerve uh, but I come out of that surgery and the idea is that you come out better and it's not immediate always because of course you've got that healing recovery you've got the the mo re the rehabilitation as well but by and large it, you can see that that improvement and that progress has been made right from that point in time and so i think it's fascinating that and how we have harnessed science and technology from an anesthetic point of view the pharmacology the machines that keep you alive from a surgical point of view from the materials chemistry that uh, facilitates the manufacture of sutures sutures that you can sew blood vessels of two millimeters together under a microscope with all the lens systems and the electronics and so it goes on i mean it's fascinating just walking into an operating room is just you know, incredible because there's so much tech there it was interesting during covid actually we had some challenges we put on a, an innovation website uh, uh and we asked uh for various ideas around you know recovery and around the cleaning and all sorts of things and one of the uh, pieces of work i did with a group of people was with students with school students year 12 students who and i took them on a virtual tour of an operating theater and a, a theater set up for a covid patient and a theater set up business as usual and then we talked about uh, interactive session talking about the the needs I mean I'd love to be able to turn somebody in the operating room without lifting them I've just done a, an operation on a very six foot four gentleman who is really heavily muscled and he's heavy you know and I'm like small <laughs> and so trying to look, look at how can we brainstorm that so looking at that th that tech and then the students went away and did a ideation sort of uh, process and six weeks later came back with amazing ideas and some are still going but it just goes to show that even though it's an amazing environment with amazing tech we can always do better and mm -hmm. that's what makes me excited in terms of that gentleman with the who was six foot four and very heavy uh did, was it do you just get in with hands and, and turn them or, or are there devices that you you use no, it's it's uh, muscle, and I was with a, 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 a the team today uh, was, uh, and I'm always say, well, hmm, okay, I'll be sexist. You're big, you're strong, you lift the leg, and I'll I'll do the I'll do the operation. <laughs> Can I ask, um, are, are you are you only working on burns these days, or do you still work uh, also in in reconstruction in other areas? predominantly burns acute burns but all the way through to the the full rehabilitation full reconstruction so we do a lot of scar work as well and the some of the times the scar uh, re reconstruction we do comes from non-burn sort of problems mm -hmm. as well uh, and so we we deal with very complex difficult scars uh keloids are the the top end and they can be really challenging we're very actively researching in that space as well as uh you know, Big surface area problems. Uh, so people have lost big surface areas of their skin and tissue 
which could be from infection, from other trauma. And so, yeah, we do the plastic sort of reconstruction around that as well. Sorry, what's a keloid? A keloid scar is a really interesting situation. It's where the, uh, the scar, uh, the, the tissue responds to, to healing, like we heal. We, well, first thing that happens when we cut ourselves, for example, is we, the, everything gets very sticky and our platelets come out of the blood and they get sticky and they stick the two edges together and it's our blood clot, that's the scab, yeah? Uh, and then the, then the cells move in and they eat that away uh, and that's followed by cells kind of moving in to rebuild. So you get the hemostasis, the blood stop the blood, then you get all the, the removal of the necrotic tissue and then you get the rebuilding and the remodeling. And those cells that come in to remodel uh, are the fibroblasts by and large, but all, as we've discovered, a lot of the surface cells, the keratinocytes, are involved actively in this process, as well as systemic cells that are in your circulation, in your blood, and they don't know to stop. So the scar just keeps on growing and growing and growing and becomes very debilitating. And uh, it can be painful and itchy and, uh, and those sorts of things as well. But uh, it can... Uh, cause functional disability because you can't move and uh, and they're really hard to treat uh, because they if you surgically remove them without doing any uh, associated care therapy then they will come back and they will it's, come back bigger yeah. and so it's it's locally it's really aggressive locally yeah is is uh is the reason why you can't move because the the scar is tight or because there's nerve damage or what what's the story on that end? The scars become tight and contract down, and so if if it's it depends on the position. If it's over the front of a joint, that can uh, damage uh, can impact on the movement there. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's more positional as well. Mm -hmm. So w why does the body? scar is it is it um you know back i'm imagining back in the day you wanted to cover a wound as quickly as possible to prevent infection and, and there's something at play like that but why doesn't the body know how to regenerate normal skin well have you how long have you got <laughs> well as long I, as you want to be honest yeah this is a really interesting question that i asked myself as a very young person because i figured that if geckos could grow tails with the spots and everything in the right place, then surely we would be, we'd be able to research and understand regeneration such that we could change the triggers from a, from a scar repair to a regenerative repair. And I gave myself 20 years to, to nail that. And I'd have to say we've made this, certainly made a lot of progress, but I'm still, it was very naive because it is a complex situation. But for example, Oh, we, we are, we are self-organizing uh, to a certain shape and that shape is maintained through life. We may get fat, we may get thin, but we're recognizable by and large through life. And so what retains that capacity to, uh, to constantly repair our surface? Because our surface of our skin is shed every six to eight weeks. And so it's a, we're an active organism that is dynamic. And so in all but small injuries, that capacity to regenerate becomes overwhelmed. And yes, we can, uh, we can postulate that that's evolutionary has an advantage because we can close wounds quickly and we can survive. But I, I think that's a little simplistic. But mm -hmm. so trying to understand the drivers to scarring has been front and center of my life for nearly 40 years. And as I say, we've made progress in the use of cell-based therapies, the use of understanding the nervous system interaction, because the skin is just a big part of the extension of our nervous system. You know, it does so, it's our interface to the world. It, it, we, you know, it controls our temperature, that uh, regulates a whole lot of things around uh, our systemic responses and things like even our blushing and stuff when we're embarrassed. So it is a neurally active organ. So one of the things I've postulated many years ago is, will we be able to ever think ourselves whole? Is the three-dimensional spatial information for our surface housed in the homunculus in the brain? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do know 
we're making progress in understanding. Because I can tell you that if I'm burnt on my right hand, the nerves on my left hand are changed. And it would appear long term. And not only that, but I've changed patterning centrally in my brain. And we use things like a mirror box, where if your hand is burnt, we'll put your hand in a box, and it's a mirror on the outside, and you'll move your good hand such that your injured hand will get better quicker. Yeah, so, so, the, so, sorry, so, so the idea is that you, actually, it's not just local healing, but your brain is somehow involved. Do you, do you have cases where people who are unconscious are not able to heal as well or in terms of burns? Or, do, or do you, have you done MRI scans? That's fascinating because we do have a group of patients that require ventilation and sort of main sedation in the intensive care, but not that you know. But there's an awful lot that don't, and so I can't answer that question. But we we've actively investigated using transcranial magnetic stimulation, and we've just got a grant with NHMRC to actually use that technique not only to monitor the uh, the homunculus, the patterning on the brain, but to actually drive neural plasticity. So from the begin- middle of this year, we'll be uh, trying to use magnetic stimulation of the brain to increase neural plasticity to facilitate improved outcome. And that's been, that is, I'm really excited about this because that has been 15 years in, the, in getting to the point where we've got a grant to actually investigate that. Uh, but it's just one tiny piece of an incredibly complex jigsaw. So what we have, we need the cells capable of differentiating into skin. And skin is more than just two layers. It's got your hair follicles, your sweat glands, the blood vessels, the nerves. It's a very complex interactive organ. So we need the cells. And so the cells are, uh, are, very, are various. Then we need a framework so that the cells in, in that framework feel familiar. And so then they can express themselves as they would in normal skin. And then we need the drivers to this self-organization. And mm-hmm. I can say, is that neurological? So we're working in all different areas and cell-based therapies, understanding which cells need to be in there, understanding what they need. Uh, what environment they need to be in. And so we've got a program uh, developing a point-of-care three-dimensional printer, a skin printer, and we uh, at the moment in the experimental phase trying to understand the different bioinks that facilitate a, a different healing patterns. Again, trying to get a regenerative phenotype of the cells of the, uh, within, the, within the construct. And so, again, that's really exciting. And it's really cutting-edge stuff, and we do that in collaboration with teams in in Venture in New South Wales and the University of Wollongong and University in Curtin, as well as our university here, as well as the hospitals. So lots of things that are happening. Before getting into your research, I wanted to take a step back and actually ask, you know, why why was it initially that you decided to specialize in, in burns as opposed to uh, dealing primarily with you know congenital defects or or even going into cosmetic surgery. I guess all those years ago, as I started out in uh, in my early training, I was fascinated by the the the, the extreme response that burns initiated, and how uh, it was a complex. Uh, mixture of trying to understand getting every uh, the patient ready ready for surgery the surgery itself and then the recovery it was much more complex it was interesting and they seemed the scars were awful and still there's some terrible scarring from burn injuries but the same we've gotten better along the way but but it was just like gosh can't we do better than this and so it really sparked my interest and sometimes motivation is elusive isn't it but it's uh, it's it, it in of itself drives you in, in a path where you develop a passion. And I did have a passion for cleft lip and palates as well. Mm-hmm. And I started as a young consultant in 1991. I was the director of the Burns Service, but I also uh, was one of the cleft lip and palate surgeons at the Children's Hospital. 
and I did research in the, the changes in the airway and the respiratory function in the clefts as we were repairing uh, the palates and things. And then I, I, a couple of years in, I realized I had to make a decision. I was in a fork in the road and, and I had to understand to really do, I'm a, to do whichever subject I chose, the very best I, I could, I had to focus. And so I chose Burns because it was a poor orphan. <laughs> it, the challenges were bigger in many ways and there was no one else interested <laughs> in taking it on in a way that I felt it needed. It needed serious leadership. Not that people hadn't learned it before in, the, in my space here, but really integrating the research into the clinical practice, really integrating that multidisciplinary approach, really understanding how we could harness the, 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 the clinical systems to the very best uh, uh, we could, as well as the science and technology and the research. So it, it was the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And so not would have been one to shy away from a challenge. I went for the hardest uh, on in my perception at the time. That's why I went for that, for the burns. Mm -hmm. So so it was difficult on a technical side, but I imagine also on an emotional side, it's quite difficult, right? Because you're dealing with patients Sometimes I imagine over long periods of time where they're in pain for extended, it, that must take an emotional toll when, when you're dealing with patients in, in that regard as well. I think I had a conversation with one of the young uh, trainees the other day and after a certain event that he was involved in and uh, he was clearly upset about the whole situation. And I said, you know, it won't be the last time you're in a situation of emotional turmoil. But what, in order to stay in this, you need to understand how yourself and how you can develop and build your resilience whilst retaining your empathy and your humanity and humility for that matter. And for me, I've, been, I've tried to do that by always focusing on learning from today to make tomorrow better. So my resilience and my coping strategy has always been around my research because always looking for some way to improve in small things, big things, whatever, has given me the belief that I can stay at the table. And how, however hard it is, for me, it's a fraction compared to how hard it is for the patient. And so what I bring to the table is the hope that we can actually learn from the situation they're going through to reduce the, that, that suffering for others in the future. So that has been a very, that started as I was early on trying to deal with all this, realizing that all you can do is your best, but you have to frame your best in a way that you can build your resilience and, and build your capacity to cope, not just, short term but long term it's a marathon not a sprint because as i said earlier about surgery and the systems around us now what privileges and what an amazing sort of thing it is but it's not foolproof and there's mm -hmm. always going to be dark days and getting through those dark days for me is learning aggressively uh, learning so that we can reduce suffering in the future on the I imagine that that approach actually transfers uh, to the patient somewhat. I mean, it, psychologically, it must be a huge impact on your life when you've had severe burns. And it would feel so nice in in those terrible moments to be dealing with, with a doctor who has your approach. I, I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, but it's a, team, it's a team effort and it's the whole team going to, uh, you know, the nursing, allied health medical and all our support staff so it's it's the whole team and understanding that collectively we are much better than individual as a you know as a, we're not a set of individuals we are a team mm -hmm. so from on the technical side then what makes burns what, what are the factors that make burns so difficult to deal with is it primarily infection what what what, what is it that really struck out as this is a problem I, I, I'm going to work on for yourself? Well, 
I think I first started uh, well infections is a really big problem it's the biggest cause of death and of problems uh, still and so that's something a massive part of our, our uh, work and infection control therefore is a big part of our work so we were all uh, we have an environment of airflow and uh, and filtered air and all that kind of stuff so that we can reduce risk uh, so we have technical uh, specifications around that as well as our sort of clinical approach uh, but I got I got sort of drawn in first off with the difficulty of healing uh, by regeneration as opposed to scar that was the, the holy grail scarless healing as I've gone forward it's scarless healing inside and out because I understand now that it's not just the surface scarring but it's more than skin deep and in fact, it is a systemic response that is, uh, drives a, a lot of secondary problems. And so understanding that whole uh, a person impact has been a, a, a real ongoing uh, driver for me to, because there are so many, so many things we don't know. And, mm -hmm. it, and as, the, as we got better with our you know, chemistry analysis with our uh, with our sort of cell-based uh, understanding with our now we can there's techniques where we can look at single cells and look at their phenotype and, and understand how those cells are going to respond now we've got a whole suite of new technologies that we need to bring to the table and understand with with the sort of twin uh, the uh, the sort of this century kind of technologies has on it rather than last centuries mm. I know this wasn't the direction you were going in when you when you mentioned that the problem is somehow internal, but it made me think. You know, are there differences in in the different types of? I mean, you you could have acid burns, you could have, uh, you know, burns due to the sun, uh, but also you could have burns inside of your your throat and this sort of thing. Is there a big difference when you're dealing with these different uh, types in, internally? Certainly, uh, on the surface, if you're electrical burn, chemical burn, uh, thermal radiation, contact, uh, even cold injury, there's a, a common sort of theme in that that uh, is massively inflammatory, and the 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 burn itself uh, will be varying amount of tissue dis destruction, like uh, electrical is very destructive. Uh, flame is more destructive than a scald, for example, as well. Uh, so it's the, the the mechanism of injury will drive how much tissue is damaged and also the surface area that's involved will be a massive impact on the uh, the secondary problems and the outcome. So uh, there is a commonality, but we recognize uh, in the responses, but we recognize that the, the severity is often associated with the with the the incident you know whether it's a, a cup of coffee uh, or whether it's an explosion clearly there's a difference in that earlier on you mentioned um about mobility problems what do you, what do you do well I, what did you do back when you first started when when you were presented with a child who's going to grow uh did do they have to throughout their entire life continue to get uh, attention and surgery or, or what happens there some of our more severe burns, absolutely. I've known uh, a whole group of people. I've seen them grow and they've you know, into young people and from babies. And so they, they re re retain their connection with us throughout that period of time. So, so we've been able to facilitate their growth, whether it be with our laser treatment for the scars or with a more formal scar uh, reconstruction. And so certainly in the more severe burns, then uh, you, people are anchored with us until they're fully grown. And then beyond too, because you know people know we're always here and as their life change, then, uh, the scars are relentless. And sometimes many, many years later, they have a problem and that brings them back. Um, another question that I, I'm a little bit curious about this because no one talks about it, but so we all associate cancer with sunburn, but if you've had severe burns all over your body, is that also something that could lead to cancer later on in life or what's the story there? That's a really interesting question. Uh, in some years ago, in 2003, we uh, treated a young boy 
an eight-year-old who survived an 80% body surface area burn. So the vast majority of his body surface was burnt and he survived very well, but only to die of a rare cancer some years later, some three years later. And uh, so we decided that that couldn't be just a coincidence. We couldn't, and we had to explore. Uh, and so we used data linkage. So we linked data from 34,000 patients with burn injury with 120,000 comparators, age, sex, geospatial, and socioeconomic comparators, and asked the question, has surviving a burn injury led to an increased risk of cancer downstream? And the answer was yes, in some, kind, in some circumstances, in some types, yes. But the obvious uh, more severe burn, more risk, didn't appear to bear, bear out. And this is an area that we're still actively uh, look engaging in. And it's not, it wasn't just skin cancer, it was all types of cancers. And so then we started looking beyond that and we could see that a person who survived a burn has an increased risk of infection, not skin, but other kinds of infection also, of uh, heart diseases and all the, 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 the diseases of aging essentially. And so we're doing a lot of research trying to understand how this acute event can change your life trajectory. And if we understood the mechanism, then we can uh, develop therapies to make sure that it doesn't and to improve the, the outcome. So uh, that is something that we're very much embedded in at the moment, trying to understand that. And of course, uh, that re requires collaboration with people with uh, different skill sets and and that's exciting and interesting too, because you're learning all the time. In that research, did you look at just longevity in general? Uh, we're looking over time and uh, population data linkage was kind of hypothesis generating. And it's uh, then we go into the various uh, uh, systems of research to try and understand the mechanism. And that's where we are, we are at now. Mm -hmm. So, Okay. Well, I guess one thing I'm curious about is, so I want to, I want to get some picture of, you know, where things were at the start of your career and the trajectory uh, to where you are now and the advances have come in. So, so what was the state of the art when you first started uh, as a surgeon and in particular, when you first started looking uh, into burns specifically? I guess that the, if you look at the surgery, uh, it, the only thing we had was skin grafts. And we can make the skin grafts bigger by meshing them and stretching them out. And we would take the skin grafts with a free hand knife. Now, just earlier today, not only have I, do I use skin grafts, but I've got synthetic templates, I've got cell-based therapies, and I harvest a skin graft with a, a electric power tool. You know, so there's, and so that's just absolutely one tiny aspect of what we do, but just in that, there's a, been quite a shift in uh, what we're able to do and the, with the finesse, we're able to do it as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're still using skin grafts, right? The technology hasn't come to a point where that's no longer necessary. No, it's, again, it's uh, horses for courses, trying to uh, match when to use a skin graft, when to uh, use cells uh, in isolation that are harvested from a skin graft and when to use the more uh, the dermal substitutes, which give you in situ tissue guided regeneration where the cells grow in and restore a uh, the deeper less aspects of the skin. And then we come in and repair that over the top. So it's it, so that, yes, we still use skin grafts, but we use them in a different way and not exclusively. We've, we've got more tools in the toolbox than we mm -hmm. had before. I, I had a work colleague uh, many years ago who had severe burns and he, he had uh, skin grafts, which I imagine were stretched. They look like um, fish scales or, or like crocodile scales, something like this. I, I imagine what happened is you put, not you, but the, the doctor put uh, uh, marks and then stretched out the skin. But um, one aspect that I was quite curious about, um, they mentioned that as part of the, the healing process, they had to, the nurses would go in and, and um, sorry, remove uh, skin during the healing process. What, what, what was that? What, what, what's going on there? Well, first of all, we have to remove 
uh, the dead uh, skin, the damaged skin. And that can be done surgically, or uh, but initially we tend to uh, go through a period of dressings to control the situation, control the wound, con uh, while we get everybody uh, the best they can be and optimised, ready for surgery if it's needed. If it's not needed, we can use a different dressing systems. Again, a huge number of different sort of technology around dressing systems has really exploded. And we can uh, allow that sort of dead tissue to come, uh, come away, and certainly with enzymes as well, and so that we can avoid surgery in certain circumstances. And then whether we've had surgery repair or whether we go through that conservative path, then we have that that going into the healing. So we remove all the dead tissue, repair if needed with surgery, and then you're in that healing phase. And again, infection is a really big problem. And so the dressings can't stay for too long. And so then the nurses will change the dressings frequently, depending on the risks for the patient, the body site, the age, their, uh, whether they've got bacteria on their swabs, uh, what dressings we've got available, and so that's the, the sort of daily or weekly or whatever it is, will be continually surveilling the wound, trying to facilitate the healing and minimize the risk of infection. I read an article some time ago about uh, doctors now using fish skin over burns. Is that something you're familiar with? What, what's, what's that technology? Certainly I've read about it. It's like potato skins, banana leaves, fish skin. There's a lot of things that can provide a framework where the cells uh, in an, an environment of infection control, the, the scale cells that can be salvaged within the wound bed can, can then be uh, facilitate a healing pattern and these things protect uh, from the external surf, invasion of bacteria, for evaporative water loss. So they keeps everything inside in and the outside out. And so that's what they're a barrier function and they're a biological dressing essentially. I see. When you when you first started, um, I guess that's that's moving forward a little bit uh, beyond where I wanted to go. When you first started, uh, what could people survive? As in, uh, you know, what were the limits of the technology at that point? I think this, this is the increasingly over, uh, I suppose this started as I was start, just beginning, that people were beginning to survive much more uh, extensive burns because the technology around our intensive care and resus supporting our understanding around resuscitation was really uh, becoming much more sophisticated. Our understanding around nutrition was becoming much more sophisticated over the last well, probably 50 plus years. And so with that came the, the drive to understand how we can heal these massive wounds. And that's where I guess I started with, well, can we use tissue expansion? Can we take cells into the laboratory and expand their laboratory-based tissue expansion? How can we use cells with scaffolds that we can bring the cells from the patient, but scaffolds off the shelf? Uh, already prepared, ready to uh, facilitate that tissue ingrowth. And so I think it was a major driver that an improvement in intensive care and resuscitation was a major driver to all the secondary technologies around uh, uh, wound healing and the, not just the tissue, tissue engineering, but also the dressing systems. Did you have, were there any experiences with individual patients that sort of uh kicked off this drive and made you made you think uh we can do better here were there specific cases that um come to you i think it's a your, your question is really interesting to me because as i as you ask that i see all sorts of different people that have uh, sort of images in front of my eyes if you like uh people that you know uh, for a certain very small time uh you're part of their journey and they're part of yours and seeing how they respond and uh, and how they heal um, both well or terribly and mm -hmm. can really stick with you and and say right okay let's interrogate this situation what what is it that I can take forward from this and so yeah that it's been my privilege to treat thousands of patients now thousands and you know there are some people that I will never forget and there but overall i just think well 
as I say, it's a privilege to have been in a position where I could have helped them. Are, are there any in particular that uh, any examples you can give of someone who's really uh, struck you, or, or or is there some patient confidentiality? You know, do you have to? It's where to stop and start because I say there's so many. At some point, I've been asked. Uh, like who who inspires you and I'd have to say my answer has always been well my mum and dad because they worked so hard Uh, and then the teachers I had because they were selfless but the third group is the patients I have my privilege to treat because they're inspirational and so it would be wrong of me to to kind of pick pluck one or two Mm -hmm. out because Mm -hmm. there are so many that have, have made have made an impact over the years yeah we have one patient who who uh, almost, I think we have, uh, what's like, 10, 20 years after burn injury, well, well older than me, abseiled down uh, the tallest building in Perth to raise money for us when wow. she is 20 years plus post a very, very 80% plus burn. I mean, those things are really... Yeah, cool. It's cool. I mean, that must feel so nice when when you have when you can see that sort of an impact where where you've you've literally saved that person's life and they're so thankful. I I want to jump into some of the technology that that you've brought on that's sort of been most helpful for some of these more severe cases. So I wanted to ask you about um, the resell, so the, the spray on skin technology that you developed. And um, maybe a good place to start. Would you would could you give some overview of, of what the technology is? Basically, resell is just a kit, and what we tried to do was take the basic first steps of the tissue engineering of skin process, put them in a box, and take the box to the operating room. And so that's it in a nutshell. And skin, as we harvest a split thickness skin graft, it's like we're taking the the layers of skin. And if you imagine a bread and butter sandwich, and what we want is the engine room of the skin, the skin that is the, the, that is continually turning over. And so that's the butter in the bread and butter sandwich. And so the first thing in the kit is an enzyme, and it, and it facilitates splitting of the skin at the right layer so that we can access that butter. And then we physically disintegrate the skin, so we scrape it, so we scrape the butter off, and then we filter it, and, and then we put... Uh, a nozzle on the syringe and we spray the skin cells directly back onto the wound and we can do that in 30 minutes yeah so it's it was taking certain aspects of the tissue engineering process but instead of using laboratory-based tissue expansion taking that to the bedside and using the patient as their tissue engineering uh, their wound as the tissue engineering environment and changing the the ratio of cells in that environment to facilitate healing. So we can, if we can salvage the deeper aspects of the skin, we can use it on its own. If there's go, burn goes deeper, then we use it with traditional technologies and with the newer sca- dermal scaffold technologies. So that's it in a nutshell. Okay, so uh, if I understand correctly, so so you take. Uh, some some skin either from the burn wound itself or from elsewhere in the body and then you you put it in an enzyme which breaks up the skin into individual cell components uh, which is in a liquid and then that you can spray that that's the that's the butter you were talking about but it's always from non-injured skin Okay, okay. So you never you never take from the burn wound itself? No, because the burn wound itself we want to prepare to salvage anything any capacity to healing in that in that wound. Uh and we don't want to uh we don't want the cells that are actually primed to go down a scar route. So the cells from a non injured area are primed to go down to repair just normally, just regenerate like it does normally. So that's what we're seeking. We're seeking to change that balance from scar repair to regeneration. How do you choose a location to take the healthy, uh, especially when you've got someone who's missing a large amount of skin? Is, is there... Are there locations in the body that are better to take the skin from? It varies. Like it's uh, by and large the bottom or the back of the thigh, uh, behind the ear if we're doing the face. 
the sole of the foot if we're doing the palm of the hand. So we try and match it the best we can. Oh, I see. So it's 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 better to take uh, a skin that's like the skin that you're trying to replace. It, it, that that does matter. Yeah, that does matter if we can. Yeah. Can I can I ask? Um, in terms of when you spray, obviously you're putting mechanical pressure on the the liquid which the cells are in. Do you have do do the cells survive well that spraying process? Now that was something that oh, in the early nineties we we uh, spent a lot of time uh, figuring out how to deliver this as a this suspension uh, in an aerosol. And the answer to the question is that yeah, absolutely, it's ninety percent plus viability coming through the system. And so we did a lot of work on uh, checking out the different uh, nozzles that we could we found in the pharmacy and the art store and the uh, and the anaesthetic trolley. And we found a nozzle with its vortex and aperture was such that it retained the viability of the cells when linked to a five mil syringe. If you put it on two mil syringe, you can kill everything because the pressure differentials oh. are different as such. So we did, the, we did that work in the early 90s. Yeah. Oh, nice. So, so you, you have, a, so 95%, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's not plus 90 plus percent. Yeah. 90 plus. 90 plus. So, so uh, in terms of, so if, if, if you take a, a skin sample from me, for example, can you also um, grow more skin cells? As in, if you, given time, can you make, can you make up that 80% of missing skin? Well, the skin cells that, that we spray on, we can do, uh, we can deliver to the wound in an expansion ratio of one to 80 maximally. Uh, and if we, we don't do this very now, but we did for many years. We had a laboratory where we would grow the skin cells into sheets and use the sheets. Uh, but they take a little time to hear, to become a sheet, sort of somewhere around 10 days to 21 days. But we, 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 we used to take us about 10 days. And so, but that's a long time to wait. And so that was one of the things. Certainly we use it in our research. We grow skin cells into confluent sheets. And, uh, and certainly in other places in the world they do that. But so, you, yes, it is entirely possible. That's where the technology started in Boston. Yeah. So, so how, in terms of the time scale for someone who's got a burn, uh, how how has this technology changed things from when you were doing traditional grafts all the way up to the resale spraying? It's all about trying to get the wound healed the best you can with the best uh, opportunities available in the shortest period of time. And so being able to expand the surface area cover can reduce the number of operations you need uh, and can salve, can allow some of the salvage of the tissue if you go if you can operate earlier with a low risk, a lower risk procedure, which is the spraying the cells on, then you can close the wound down and then you just only do a formal uh, excision and graft on a smaller area. So it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated Rubik's cube, I think, whether you look at the patients, their age, their uh, other problems they may have, the body site involved, how deep is it, how big is it, uh, and how fit they are. And then you think, okay, well, this is, uh, first 48 hours we optimize and then we're trying to assess would this wound heal if we left it alone and did nothing because that's that's a significant mm -hmm. number of our patients we treat conservatively because they're they and we just keep them clean infection free and pain free and then they they go conservative path and then if not if we think that they're not going to heal within a two to three week time frame then we try and operate at around three to five days. So we don't want to wait for that uh, two to three week time frame. So we want to bring mm -hmm. that closer. And so that uh, the idea there that it reduces that, uh, that long term impact, but time will tell. And certainly that's uh, uh, something that we're continually surveilling. Mm -hmm. But so it sounds like you're able to knock a number of weeks off some of the operations you're, you're performing. Uh, do you have to, uh, when, when you're doing the spraying technology, do you have to go layer by layer or is it not that specific? The layer by layer is an interesting question that you asked that right now, because with the newer tech, 3D printing technology, uh, techniques that have come, uh, become available and bio, in, in the biological space particularly, we can print cells now. 
uh, and through different systems, whether it be inkjet or whatever, extrusion printing. And so we've started experimenting printing layers of bioink with layers of cells to try and understand if we can improve upon what we know, what our standard of care is now. And so that's that's a piece of research that we're very much involved in. Mm -hmm. And and so what are the limits of the technology? My friend, for example, my colleague who had the fish scale skin from years ago, can he come back to you and would you uh, reapproach an old injury? A lot of what we do is a scar revision. And so certainly uh, the old scars, we, we try and uh, improve the quality of that scar. We can never take it away, but we can blend it. We can uh, resurface, uh, we use lasers, we can inset new skin grafts and move the skin around. So yes, absolutely. We, we spend a, a lot of time in that, uh, trying to improve the quality of the scars long-term. And, and what about taking the technology forward? So you're using it to regrow skin at the moment, but is there in the distant future, can we regrow uh, more substantial injuries, you know, missing limbs, for example, or is, is there a dream on the horizon? I think that a missing limb is, is an interesting one because, you know, at some point, I mean, the gecko does it. So at some point, will that be possible? Uh, and certainly, uh, the people that have been working very aggressively in tissue engineering uh, um, are learning all the time, learning like we are with in the space of tissue engineering and skin, but there's people in muscle, in bone, in gut, in uh, all sorts of in nerves and trying to understand all these different elements and bringing them together is not a trivial exercise, clearly. And yes, it is sci-fi, absolutely. But, you know, maybe... Uh, we will get there one day, but I don't think I will see it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might see the end of skin skin uh, sprays uh, in any case. Yes, but it doesn't stop us trying dreaming and trying to be part of that journey. Uh, can I... I want to ask you, uh, in the interest of time, I, I wanted to jump into, uh, I, I guess your work really shot to prominence after the Bali bombings and you were involved in, in I guess, dealing with the largest uh, number of injured patients coming out of that uh, event. Would, would, you, would you be able to give some uh, overview of the, of the, the magnitude of, of what you were faced with? I think uh, Bali was an interesting time I mean, I think a lot of people's lives changed absolutely irrevocably and the, the loss was huge for many, many people. And for us here, we were, we'd been very involved in disaster response and disaster planning with Woodside Petroleum because they were built, uh, bringing oil rigs online on the northwest shelf here. And that's a very remote area. What would happen if there was a need to respond? And so we'd actually done the planning and then we took our planning across the, uh, the whole of the country with our colleagues. And so we had a planning system that uh, we put to the Australian Health Minister's Advisory Council in July of 2002 and it was all approved. And within embedded within it was a disaster exercise where we would all work together across the country to respond, but we never did that disaster exercise because we responded for real only, well, October, it was only a couple of months later. And I think the world, uh, the window to the world, uh, our world opened and we people were interested because we had a plan and we understood how what we were going to do. And it wasn't just here, it was across the whole country, of course, because we, we were responding similarly Certainly we were closest, so we had the most patience. But it's what we were trained to do. And we had, and it, and if you think about, uh, you, know, you plan something, you have a better chance of actually you know, getting it mm -hmm. right. It's like anything. You know, it's like a, a single operation. Visualize it beforehand. Think about what can go wrong. Think about how you can optimize it. Make sure that going in, you're not you're going in having been absolutely prepared. Yeah, it's visualize in it and under, like I say, thinking of each step, how can you put the polish on each step? Who's going to be there with you? What can they do to help? And how can you dovetail that whole team together? That's what we do on the small all the time, every day. We just did more of it. 
And it was just... So did you have to fly in patients, uh, uh, doctors rather, from all over Australia? No, no, we flew... uh, We had the majority of patients here, but the patients were distributed across Australia into the Burns unit. And the Burns unit we had in our plan, uh, it was... uh, We had a buddy system, so we had plastic surgeons and plastic surgery nurses and and therapists and stuff. So we had a buddy system. So we were able to expand our capacity uh, as we as the need arose and so we had a lot of the younger uh, yeah, the consultants and uh, in plastics and have been through burns training because it's part of our burns training and so and so on so it was even though they're not doing it day in day out they're very solid uh, people to have around so what were the numbers in terms of the patients and the doctors that were on the ground well we we uh treated 28 patients here in wa uh and uh, we had uh, we started up the surgery plan, if you like, on the Wednesday, and we, we completed it on Sunday. So those five days where we were running four theatres most of the time. Not, we did two on the first day, I think, and then we increased it to four, and then two on the last day. So to man that, we had people on roster, and overall we had maybe about uh, 19 different surgeons involved, and oh, probably closer on 100 different nurses. And then, of course, there's the physios, the OTs, and dietitians, the psychologists, and the t- this, yep, and all the support staff as well. And what sort of hours were you doing? Well, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You've got to make sure you eat and you've got to sleep. And so I made sure only person in the hospital was the person on call, and everyone else had to go home. And we, mm-hmm. yeah, so I was uh, made sure everybody was home after, and, and then coming in before ward rounds before theatre in the morning had to start earlier of course because we had a lot more people and the ward rounds after theatre at the end of the day took longer because we had more people but then it's guys it's home time we'll mm-hmm. be doing this again tomorrow so and the major okay surgery- so there was a reg uh, it was prepared in in a yes part of the part of the plan is the rostering absolutely mm-hmm. and and uh, I guess these are pretty significant attacks were you dealing with all sorts of trauma on top of the burns or what was the story there yes i've never i've not uh, worked in a, a war zone so and so certainly the explosion and the was more akin to that kind of burn injury because there's concomitant trauma and uh, very unpleasant injuries alongside so it was challenging from that perspective absolutely and i i, I you had uh, quite a high success rate uh, coming coming out of uh, such a large n- amount of trauma. So, I think, so. yeah, we, uh, unfortunately, we lost three of our patients, uh, one very early within a couple of days, one around a week and one at 56 days. And that's interesting because it marries our, our business as usual, if you like, where about a third of our patients are overwhelmed, the injury is overwhelming, we just can't get off the blocks, it's just uh, as the trauma with the technologies available today, all we can do is make sure they're comfortable. And then there's a group where we try, maybe they're younger, and even though we, they, it could be overwhelming, without trying, without doing 100% right from the word go, there's no chance. And then it, be, mm-hmm. it declare the situation declares itself within about a week, but the the hardest group are those that are with us for three months, and they f- fall through our fingers like sand, and usually and that's infection, that in waves mm-hmm. of infection coming over and they're weakening, and uh, that's the hard that's the hard group because that's a lot of suffering. And that's the mm-hmm. that's where, and as I said, my coping strategy is to really understand how we can do better, and and yeah. understand how someone with that level of injury who does survive, what's the difference? What's the difference mm-hmm. between someone who survives and someone who doesn't? Yeah, all all opportunities to learn and all opportunities to improve. Hmm. That must be so hard when when you've. You, I mean, you, you grow connected with a person if you're dealing with them for three months. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. Yeah, and the whole, the, but again, what we feel, and we support each other, absolutely, is, yeah, it's hard. 
but it's nothing compared to the family and we we have to put it into perspective and that's as i say that's part of the whole learning to always uh, understand that there i guess there's always someone worse off than you and not to be self-indulgent mm. so uh, at, at the time then were you using the spray on skin technology uh, during that incident or is that too early no, no, we started spraying skin cells on 1994, 95. So it was part mm -hmm. of our standard of care. So it was, uh, even though the rest of the world, like kind of window to our world open and they thought, oh gosh, this is new. It wasn't new for us. Mm -hmm. And what impact did that have, do you think, on the survival rates and, and the uh, aftercare and, and the long-term prospects for those uh, patients? Do you think that had a big impact? I think that's a really impossible question to answer in in that burn injury in is and burn survival is a multidisciplinary thing. So there's a whole lot of uh, pieces of this jigsaw. It is one piece that we the jigsaw that we've developed and we've driven and we we can fit with the others and we're always trying to strive to get better. So yes, uh, over the you know the thirty years we, uh, our survival and uh, outcome rates we've tracked them and we can uh, see how people are going but you know that particular event is specifics is really hard but generally yeah that's the goal is to always improve yeah but in terms of so you, you mentioned that uh, previously when you first started you might need three weeks to um, help a patient um, and when you're dealing with large numbers of patients uh, the technology might have helped you deal with with the numbers yeah Certain, yeah well certainly from our perspective uh we the goal was to treat each of those patients as if they were here as an individual and that's what we were in our unit with our standard of care and that's what we were able to achieve yeah mm -hmm. that's pretty amazing considering what you're dealing with i i, I realized that you uh, given your, your your time and you have to um head off soon so i wanted to wrap up with just two questions if that's okay so I, I, I wanted to ask, you know, on a, on a happier note, uh, not, 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 I mean, we've been talking about the trauma, but has it been fulfilling to, to see the impact that your work has had on, on lives of people and, and the, the huge response? I mean, it sounds like you've had a huge positive response uh, and a lot of appreciation following this impact. How has that been? Like, how, how, does it, how does it feel on that side of the story? I think it's a really in, uh, yeah, really hard question to answer and imponderable because I you go you know I went to school uh, and I, I worked hard because I wanted to be to do actually physics and maths and uh, then my I got coerced by my brother and my mother to do medicine and I haven't looked back I have lived a charmed life I feel very very privileged uh, to be in a space where I get up in the morning and enjoy what I do and uh, and I'm continually stimulated and continually interested and curious about things and, and curious and how to engage with everything as it goes forward whether it be digital technology uh, chemistry analysis or whatever uh, the 3d printer the transcranial magnetic stimulator all of these things well how can I use these to improve uh, patient care and to have lived that journey is is something that I'm, I feel just extraordinary. And so along that journey, something like the Australian of the Year comes very left field. And it's just like, whoa, this is what I do, you know? This is what I do, this is what I get up to do. This is, this is my vocation. And it's not like my vocation is as an entertainer, you know? My vocation isn't like, uh, I want to sing for everyone. And so it's a bit strange uh, and, mm -hmm. It's uh, and I remember my husband's, uh, and I mean, was I thought, and I was kind of like bemused and upset and distressed by it all because it's uh, kind of overwhelming. And he said, "You've got an opportunity to have your voice heard. Just don't waste it." Mm -hmm. uh, oh, okay, all right then. <laughs> and and if, and it has been an extraordinary opportunity to be able to explore things like leadership, motivation collaboration and, and actually understanding that doing something for nothing for somebody you may never meet is a really life-affirming thing to do yeah mm -hmm. and to understand that we're in this together 
whether you're interested in you know climate research space and cosmology whatever you're interested in it is of a value to all of us and we need to be able to make the place a, a better place for all of us so that we have a capacity to hand a hand on a history that we're proud of because mm -hmm. that's the ultimately the most important thing that we are proud of what we're handing to our children and grandkids and so for so, me well i just i just sometimes can't believe what's happened to me really <laughs> so uh, uh, so it's opened up a lot of doors in other words yeah things that yeah i would never have dreamt uh, i would be speaking about <laughs> yes so then maybe a, a nice place to close off is uh, the future. So where where do you see the technology you've developed going? Where, what, what's the dream in, in, in the coming years uh, as far as you see it? The dream and the vision remains scarless healing inside and out. And so tissue regeneration, using you know, the 3D printer, guided robotic guided printer to print skin such that it is seamless with the with the uh, normal surrounding skin so because we've understood the scarring and the integration of that and the in the innovation so the nerves can drive into it so that the skin is normalized and if we understood all that because the skin is on the surface it's accessible to understanding all these then things well, then we can translate that to other other aspects of our, our body. And so for me, it's always that that focus is how can we actually drive to regeneration? And and that is a complete three dimensional construct that was as good as, if not better than before the surgery or the injury. Escaped sapiens.